Lord, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to come and study the ancient world that you left your mark on, Father, um, the, the ways in which you have moved in history. Walt just prayed to you, Lord, for me, and he said that you um, not only put your glory in the skies, but you buried it in the ground as well. And we pray that you'd help us to see some of that tonight, Lord. Um, help us to know what to do with this stuff. Help us to, I, I pray that for those who need the a strengthening of their faith, that this would be that. Um, for those who maybe r remain a little bit skeptical of what you've done, that you would move them closer to you through um, some of the things that you have uh, laid on my heart to share. And for all of us, Lord, I just pray that we would uh, have a deeper sense of uh, your realness, your closeness, um, and how you, as you were with them back then, so you are with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, um, tonight we're going to be uh, looking at the conquest and the settlement of the land of Israel. Last week, we looked at Joseph and the Exodus. And so let's take a look first at our timeline. Um, so just kind of like to sink in to what we're talking about here. Some of the things we looked at last, last week were, um, we looked at two possible dates for the exodus from Egypt. The first one was about here in the, about 1446 BC. And uh, the other one is the later date at about 1250. And if I wasn't entirely clear, I personally am more persuaded by this later date here. So I've left that up there. Um, I think it fits um, uh, with, uh, well, for other things, the, some of the cities that are mentioned in the book of Exodus, in particular P. Ramesses, uh, as well as the city of Avaris, which, uh, as far as we can tell, would have been the city that the Israelites lived in. I did get a question about how big the abandonment of Avaris was during this time. It was about 50,000 people um, abandoned the city at that time. Uh, and then, of course, uh, in 1208 BC, so approximately 40 years later, we have our first mention of Israel outside of the Bible. And it will be the last one for quite a few hundred years. Um, and that is in the Merneptah Stella, one of the pharaohs campaigned in the land and mentions having engaged Israel in battle there. So those are our dates there. Now, I've also put the approximate dates of Solomon's reign and David's reign, just to make things a little bit clearer. So this uh, slot, time slot here, between 1210 and 11, uh, 1011 BC, roughly, are going to be the periods of the conquest, the judges, and the reign of Saul. Uh, we cannot be sure how, rain, how long Saul reigned. Um, also, I have here for you the corresponding archaeological periods of these times. And the big, really the big ones that we're going to concern ourselves with tonight is going to be the Late Bronze Age into the Iron Age. Okay, so the, the time when the conquest of Israel is happening is at the transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. And of course, these are named after the primary um, metal technology that was in vogue at the time. It's not to say that iron was not used at all before the Iron Age, but um, that's when it becomes, starts to become really dominant. 
Okay, so that's about when we're going to be looking at that transition. And it's actually an interesting time period um, because right there at the transition from the late Bronze Age into the Iron Age, there is something that we might call a civilizational collapse in a lot of places in the ancient Near East. It's difficult both to understand why this happened and exactly what happened because as a lot of important cities were, were collapsing, uh, so did their scribal culture. And so we don't have a lot of written evidence ex uh, that from the places where this was, uh, that were kind of the epicenters of this, uh, this societal collapse. So we can look at the areas along the Mediterranean coast. Um, uh, here's a random map of the ancient Near East. You have Israel down here, Egypt. This is Mesopotamia up in here. And as far, so uh, this change, this collapse of society at the, at, at the transition between the Bronze and the Iron Age um, begins as far, into the, uh, as far um, west into the Aegean here, uh, where it's affecting Greek stuff even. Um, and you have vast migrations of people taking place. So these would be the sea peoples coming down from the Aegean. Troy is up here. Uh, the, among these people are, go this is a bunch of peoples, and among them are going to be the individuals who become known as the Philistines in the Bible. Uh, you also have uh, Sicilians going north, Hittites migrating south, Horians migrating east, Urartians, uh, vast Aramean migrations, and then, of course, this would be the time when the Israelites migrate into the land of Canaan. Um, during this period, we see also, for example, the complete dissolution of what had been the mighty Hittite Empire, um, including the fall of its, of its uh, primary capital city, Hattusa, in about 1180 BC. Um, its final king has a fun name, Shupiluliuma is his name. So that's a, your first quiz question. Um, and eventually this impacts even Egypt and Mesopotamia, although being so far inland, uh, a lot of the stuff that happened kind of took a while to affect them. And that seems to have, um, their, their, the effects on them seem to be more as the result of um, things like trade routes collapsing. Um, it's, this was probably caused by a, by a variety of factors, so perhaps environmental factors such as drought, um, and it kind of snowballs, right? Then you have the uh, collapse of trade routes, and because people start starving, they look for, and uh, they, they start looking for, for, for new places to go, and particularly the sea peoples, and when they get to the new places, there are people there, so they're going to be attacking the areas where they're going. So there's a lot of military activity. A lot of cities are destroyed during this time. So it's just a time of utter upheaval to the point where um, uh, if you read, for example, uh, uh, one ancient Near Eastern history out of many that you could look at, uh, Mark Vandemerup's history, um, he'll talk about how if you visited, took a time machine to say 1250 BC, and then went to 1050 BC, you would encounter an almost entirely different ancient world. 
Uh, Some of the cities that were destroyed um, up in Anatolia, um, Hattusa, which I've already mentioned, Miletus and Troy, uh, going further down into Syria, Alalak, Aleppo, Emar, Katna, and Ugarit are destroyed. And then in Canaan, down here, uh, the cities of Ashdod, Ashkelon, Bethel, Beth Shemesh, Chatzor, Lachish, and Megiddo, all evidence having been destroyed during this period. Okay, so that's around when the stuff we're going to be looking at today happens and what is happening in the broader world. Um, And uh, uh, this also, another effect of this I, I should probably mention is that because of the collapse in scribe or the, 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 the lack of scribal activity, especially in the areas that are close to Israel, we're dependent almost entirely on archaeological stuff to be able to tell what is going on in Israel at this time, right? Because it's not as if there's, there's people writing about what's going on. Okay, so we're going to be looking at a lot of archaeology tonight, whereas in the upcoming weeks, we're going to start to see a lot more texts. Um, Okay, so the first thing I want to note, I want to start at, and because you just have to start somewhere, is let's go to the biblical site of Mount Ebal. Now, Mount Ebal is is a significant place in the early narratives about Israel in the land, So even back in Deuteronomy, Moses uh, is told this, that when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. That's a good material to plaster with. And there you shall build an altar to Yahweh your God, an altar of uncut stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them, You shall build an altar to Yahweh, your God, of uncut stones. You shall offer burnt offerings on it to Yahweh, your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before Yahweh, your God. And you shall write on these stones all the words of this law very plainly. Deuteronomy 17, 4 through 8. And then, of course, when Joshua does come into the land, he follows this instruction. So Joshua 8, 30 through 31 reads, At that time Joshua built an altar to Yahweh, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to Yahweh and sacrificed peace offerings. So the one thing to note here about the altar of uncut stones, so this uh, is in line with the instructions, which we'll actually look at in a minute, um, for solitary altars. So you're familiar with Exodus 20, that's the chapter with the Ten Commandments in it, Um, but right after the Ten Commandments, you get instructions as to how to build lone altars. That is, altars that aren't part of the tabernacle or later the temple. Right? Those, the, the tabernacle altar is very specific. It's made of bronze, um, covering acacia wood. Uh, this is if the Lord dis, uh, basically tells you, <laughs> worship me here, and you need to build an altar, here's how you do it. And you use uncut stones to do this. Okay? So, in 1980, an archaeologist named Adam Zertel uh, is, is excavating on Mount Ebal. 
which, first of all, is a natural amphitheater. So you've got this situation in which Joshua has the people there, and uh, they are um, doing a, uh, the ritual that they've been instructed to do. So it's a good place for the reading of the law. Uh, part of the site, which is identified as Area A, contains uh, an architectural con- complex constructed on the bedrock, the corners of which are oriented towards the north, south, east, and west within one degree of accuracy. Um, it is built of, those look like cut stones to you? <laughs> those don't look like any cut stones I've ever seen, right? It's built of uncut stones. Um, the walls of it are 1.4 meters thick, and it's filled with earth, stone, ash, animal bones, and potsherds. Um, and apparently it was all filled at one time, uh, not over time. Then you've also got a ramp leading up into the central structure, uh, where you have two courtyards here and here, in which were found ash, more animal bones, and both incense and votive vessels. Votive vessels meaning things that were to carry libations. More votive pottery was found surrounding the structure. The main feature of the complex is what appears to be an altar up here. Uh, 23 feet by 30 feet by 10 feet tall. um, Meeting the biblical qualifications for solitary altars as I noted. So here's that passage from Exodus. If you make me an altar of, of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for you shall wield your tool, uh, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. I'll let your imagination fill in that detail, but that's actually not insignificant for the altar on Mount Ebal, because if you look, and here's an artist's rendition based on what's been found there, how do you get up to the altar? By steps? No, by a, by a ramp, right? Um, nearly 3,000 bones have been analyzed from this site, um, which is uh, uh, one of the largest samples of bones that's ever been examined from Israel. Um, and, of course, you've got some small animals whose bones make up about 4% of it. These would be animals that died there after the site was abandoned, so no big deal. Things like rats, hedgehogs, porcupines, and rabbits are there. But uh, 65% of the animal bones there are sheep and goats. You've also got 21% domesticated cattle and uh, 10% fallow deer, all of which are ritually clean animals. And the sheep, goats, and cattle, of course, are specifically commanded uh, to be sacrifices in the particular rituals that Joshua was told to conduct there, the uh, whole burnt offerings, the peace offerings. Um, <clears throat> most of these are, were, are in the main building, uh, scorched and slowly burned. Uh, other ma- animals, notably, that are common in surrounding sites, so if you excavate around there and you find altars and ritual sites, Uh, you find a lot of donkeys, a lot of pigs, and a lot of dogs, all of which would be unclean to offer on an Israelite altar, and none of those are found at Mount Ebal. um, Zertel also found several plaster slabs there, 
increasing the chance of it indeed being a ritual site. Um, now, as to its dating, uh, based on several of the pieces of pottery that were found there, as well as what we have here, a seal, this is a seal, you know, you, you impress it in clay, and then two Egyptian scarabs, okay? Uh, it's dated to the, both of these scarabs are dated uh, by Baruch Brandel uh, when they were originally found and examined, are found to be the second half of the 13th century BC. When is that? About 1250 to 1200 BC. When have we seen is most likely time for the Israelites to have entered the land? At about 1210 BC, okay? Um, now, what is a scarab? A scarab is basically, um, uh, they were produced in Egypt, and they were uh, usually to commemorate, like little amulets that are actually meant to look like beetles. So like if you look at the underside of the first one or the second one, you see how that's like a beetle's back, and you find them all over the place in the ancient Near East. And, um, um, and here, for example, um, on this one, you actually have a little cartouche. You guys know what a cartouche is? That's the French word for bullet, because a lot of the initial French, uh, Egyptologists were French. And it's a little enclosure which has the name of a pharaoh. Um, and in here, it says men re, which is the prenomen of Thutmose III. Um, uh, so this is a commemorative scarab of Thutmose III. And um, although he reigned earlier than this, this is a commemorative scarab, and it's, and it's uh, because of the way it's constructed in comparison with other scarabs, it is dated right to the time when the Israelites were entering the land. Um, now, uh, of course, we want to be uh, cautious in our conclusions. So some, a lot of the cautious way to state this is this may be an Israelite altar, and it may be the one that Joshua constructed on Mount Ebal. Uh, but it seems necessarily at least to affirm that it is constructed in Israel's early settlement period at the site of an important ritual event spoken of in the Bible. All right, now let's talk a little bit about the conquest itself. Um, so the conquest, of course, refers to the Israelites coming into the land and doing battle with the indigenous population there, essentially the Canaanites. And um, I, I mentioned in the first talk that the things that we consider when we're doing the history of Israel are, uh, we consider archaeology, the material culture of the past. We consider texts, which are written things that are often dug up or found in the ancient world. And we consider the, consider the Bible. And all three of the, these are things that are sub, subject to, to, um, uh, to interpretation. And that, def, that does go for the Bible as well. And so the reason I bring this up is because there is an earlier school of biblical archaeology uh, which is typically associated with some of the big names. Um, so William F. Albright, Albright, George Ernest Wright, and John Bright. Um, I don't know if they purposely rhymed their names. but um, And this is the idea... You know, when these guys were, and these guys were no joke, especially Albright. He was, 
you know, kind of the dean of archaeology at Johns Hopkins University, which is a very prominent school for this sort of thing. Um, so this is not to put them down. A lot of their work is very, very valuable. Uh, but these guys typically attempted to tie a lot of the 13th century destructions of cities such as Bethel, Debir, Eglon, Chatzor, and Lachish to the Israelite conquests spoken of in the book of Joshua and other Old Testament passages. Um, so, uh, in other words, right in the 13th century, at least as the state of archaeology was when they were writing, it was believed that, then this is the 1200s, this is the period we're looking at, it was believed that all of these sites had prominent destruction layers in their tells at this time. Okay? Uh, this, however, the, the idea that Joshua and the Israelites spread throughout the land and just kicked butt and took names and burned all the cities as they go and totally destroyed them um, is itself, is number, well, number one, it's a, it's a misreading of the archaeological data because it, as it turns out, many of the destruction layers in these cities are now commonly dated to later, later than the 13th century. Uh, but, um, but also, the biblical data does not seem to present this kind of blitzkrieg sweeping through the land of Canaan um, and just destroying all of the cities that they come in contact with. Rather, according to the book of Joshua and other Old Testament passages, only three cities are said to have been burned. Jericho, Ai, and Chatzor. Uh, of Jericho, Joshua 6.24, and they burned the, the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put to the treasury of the house of Yahweh. Joshua 8.28, so Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And Joshua 11.13, but none of the cities that stood on mounds, there's the, uh, the word tell, okay, uh, did Israel burn except Chatzor alone, that Joshua burned. So if we're going what the, by what the Bible says, we should only expect to find destruction at three sites. And why is that? Well, it's pretty clear back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're told this. Well, they're told this, and we get to read it. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land that he swore to give your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. Right? This is, the, the Israelites are not to destroy these cities because they're to live in them. Right? They're to, they're to take them over and make them their homes. And, um, and indeed, if you look uh, a, a more careful reading of, for example, Joshua 10 and 11, indicates that the people of the land were driven out and not destroyed, and certainly not the property. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so the question is, when we're looking at the archaeological record then, at the various cities in, throughout Canaan, throughout Palestine, what is reasonable to expect based on the biblical text? Uh, it seems that it is uh, unreasonable 
to expect the archaeological record to attest to widespread destruction during a conquest. Uh, in fact, Benedict Iserlin, who is the head of the Semitic studies at the University of Leeds, um, compares this to uh, several other well-known conquests from history. So, for example, the Anglo-Saxon occupation of England in the 5th century, the Muslim conquest of the Levant in the 7th, and the Norman conquest of England in AD 1066. These are well-documented conquests, all of which have little to no material evidence. So you can't always tell when, uh, pun intended, you can't always tell when a, uh, uh, when a conquest happened simply, or, or an, you know, an invasion or a battle happened simply by looking at the archaeological record. You also have to keep in mind the scale and the size of the things going on in the Old Testament. There were some questions last week about the numbers involved in the, uh, in the Israelite conquest and in how many people came out of Egypt. Uh, and there's some indication to suggest uh, that it's quite a bit smaller than what sometimes we envision in our heads. Uh, the same goes for the size of a lot of these cities. Okay? Uh, anything with a wall around it was a city. And a lot of the kings mentioned in it could just as well be thought of as mayors of their towns. It's not as if you, know, you have these immense castles and things that we might anachronistically read back into the Bible. We have to be very careful about what we assume uh, the size and the scale of this would have looked like. <clears throat> we also have to keep in mind that when we, when we do archaeology, the things that we find are there by chance, right? It's just what happens to be left over. There's no guarantee that if something was there that it will be found if I start digging today. Uh, you can imagine like your house being... Uh, being abandoned, and then someone digging in the ground uh, a thousand, and in this case, 3,000 years from now, what would they find there? What evidence would they have of how you lived your life or how your neighbors lived theirs? I like to go jogging down the trails by my house, and um, there's, in the middle of the woods, there's a house from the beginning of the, uh, from the, from the early 1900s, just in the middle of the woods, and you go in there, and it's pretty much just walls. That's a house of 100 years old, maybe. And so you have to keep in mind that what we find archaeologically is there by chance. There's also another very important axiom that, as far as I know, originated with the Egyptologist Kenneth Kitchen, but it's very helpful here as well, and it's nice and catchy. And that is evidence of absence or absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, okay? Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. If you don't find something somewhere that you're looking for archaeologically, all that means is you didn't find something. That cannot be turned into positive proof that something didn't happen. So uh, the, the, the final challenge that I just want to talk about before we look at some of these sites is that there is also considerable difficulty uh, in distinguishing Israelite material culture. So um, I'm going to go ahead and just quote uh, Lawson Stone on this because um, I think he puts it very nicely. So consider this. 
Israel consisted of elements already resident within Canaan. According to the biblical narrative, the ancestors of the Israelite nation lived in Canaan for centuries prior to the Egyptian sojourn, right? So where did the, how did the Israelites get in Egypt? They came from Canaan. Indeed, New Kingdom Egypt deported a great many farmers and tradesmen from Canaan to Egypt, and to the Egyptians, no significant difference between Canaanites and the ancestors of Israel would be discernible. They would speak the same language, share the same physical features, and likely share much material culture. Moreover, as practitioners of mixed agriculture and pastoralism, many cultural affinities uh, would, um, uh, would be shared by the Israelites and the Canaanite peasantry. So in Israelite settlements, we should not expect to see the kind of distinct material culture that characterized early Philistine sites. Okay, so uh, the Philistines, as we noted, right, come from a far-off land. And their material culture is very similar to what we find in the Aegean, very far away. So you excavate the Philistine sites, and you find a very distinct material culture. But when you're excavating Israelite sites, you're essentially... Um, trying to see the difference between people who are only sort of different than the people who already lived there before, um, who are also living in a lot of the places that they're living in and using a lot of the stuff that they used. So with that in mind, let's, take, let's consider these three burned cities. So the first one, everyone's kind of favorite here, um, Jericho, which is... Tell S. Sultan. Um, of course, we're told in Joshua, if I need to remind you, they burned the city with fire and uh, only the silver and the gold. Bye, honey. My wife's talking to the mom's group over in 300 now. Love you. Um, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of Yahweh. So that's what happened at this site. Um, this is one of the earliest, the oldest cities in the world. The earliest um, finds there date to about the 8th millennium BC. So it's an extremely ancient site. Um, <clears throat> there is a burn layer here. Um, there are collapsed city walls. Um, <clears throat> and another interesting factoid about the, uh, this destruction is that it apparently occurred shortly after harvest in the spring, uh, judging by the amount of grain that was burned, uh, which also suggests that the collapse was cataclysmic. Uh, in other words, it happened all at once and not the result of a siege. Why does that mean not a siege? Because the food is found in the city, right? Um, it's also intriguing that the grain was not taken by the conquerors. Um, and the idea of it happening in the spring, why is that significant? Well, because in Joshua 5.10, what did the Israelites do pretty much right before they go against Jericho? They celebrate the Passover for the first time in the land on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Okay, so, you know, those are some interesting facts about, about Jericho. That said, Jericho is an exceedingly tricky site that has puzzled archaeologists and biblical scholars 
for about as long as it's been excavated. The first um, shovels in the ground were uh, an Austro-German uh, expedition led by Selling and Watzinger in 1913. But the first really significant excavation that took place there was by a guy named John Garstang in the 1930s. Um, Garstang also, uh, uh, he, he is the one who initially identified fallen mud brick walls there. And he dated the city um, himself to about 1400 BC, which is, of course, early for the date of the Exodus that I've put forth, right? Because I put forth around 1250 BC, right? But that would work very nicely, very handsomely for an early Exodus, which took if it took place at 1440 BC. So then in the 50s, Dame Kathleen Kenyon, who get, got all of the cool sites, she got to excavate all the cool, she also excavated in Jerusalem. Um, she dug there and she redated the destruction identified by Garstang to the middle of Bronze II, the middle, middle Bronze II, which is 1550. So that's too early on everybody's, on everybody's account, right? Uh, no one's claiming the Israelites left Egypt that early. Um, however, she's relying on the kind of pottery she didn't find there. Remember, absence of evidence is that evidence of absence. Um, particularly, she was looking for Cypriot bichrome ware, um, but it's also kind of weird that, that the, the prob, one of the problems with the sites is that, site is that uh, by her definition, it was kind of a bit of a backwater. Uh, Jericho is not really significant because of its wealth or it being such a great city, but more for its location, the roads it allows you to control, which is probably why they went there first. Um, so, and, and she's, she was excavating the poor districts of the city, so you're going to really find the nice pottery in the places where she is um, excavating. However, she did claim to have found a late bronze destruction layer. Late bronze puts it closer to the date of the Exodus we have proposed. But frustratingly, she didn't talk a lot about this in her reports. Um, so she's dating, so Garstang dates at 1400, Kenyon dates at about 1550, uh, radiocarbon dating done subsequently confirms Kenyon's dating at about 1550 BC, although radiocarbon dating uh, is notoriously iffy um, depending on when you're looking at things. So you just have those pieces and you're like, well, what do I, what do, I do with this? What do I do with this destruction of Jericho? Um, alleged dis destruction of Jericho, right? Um, well, I think much more helpful is a more, much more recent excavations that have been going on there by an Italian-Palestinian team. Um, and this is led and published by Lorenzo Nigro. By the way, if you want to know why, one of the reasons why Jericho is such a pain in the neck, it's stuff like this, <laughs> right? There's like half the city and they're like, you know what, let's build a road through it. So who knows <laughs> what was removed when they did this, okay? So I, and you could see this is from Nigro's um, uh, uh, field report here. And it's just, uh, this was where the gate would, the, the wall would have been. It's a little frustrating there, um, what's, what's happened. 
Uh, a lot of sites have problems like that. It's not as if you could tell people to stop building their homes uh, simply because they're on, uh, they're on historically significant sites. But uh, now Nigro, all the cards on the table, if you read his report, he thinks it's a fool's errand to try to sync up the archaeology of Jericho with what's in the Bible. Um, not because he's not saying like it's, you know, it's irrelevant or anything like that. He just thinks that, you know, there's been a lot of destruction. The site's kind of a mess. And he's among the opinion that the Bible is extremely late and that the tradition in Joshua is not penned until 600 BC and stuff like that. So Nigro himself is skeptical about the, but, but I note several important things that are in his report. So first of all, the city of Jericho indeed was still occupied in the late Bronze Age, okay? And this is significant because, remember, Garstang and Kenyon both suggested that that destruction predates when the Israelites would have been in the land. However, we are arguing that the Israelites came into the land at the end of the late Bronze Age and into the transition into the Iron Age. You follow? Okay, so Nigro writes, the city of Jericho was still occupied in the late Bronze Age, although at a reduced scale. The burnt and collapsed Middle Bronze III defensive system was refurbished by adding mud brick wall on top of the surviving crest of the Cyclopean wall. I showed this picture in my talk of, of a while back on progressive Christianity when we were reviewing Peter Enns' book. This would be the, the, the wall, the mud brick wall that was built. Um, so kind of like a refurbished wall that would have existed in late, the late Bronze Age, the end of the late Bronze Age when the Israelites came in. Then note the following. In the following stage of late Bronze 2B, which is between 1300 and 1200 BC, again, that's right when we're looking at, the site was still occupied in spite of the claimed lack of Mycenaean pottery, which led Garstang to conclude that the city had been abandoned. Okay, we already know that, that, that's what Garstang thought. The absence of Mycenaean pottery in an inland center may not be chronologically meaningful. Moreover, as on the eastern flank of Spring Hill, Kenyon uncovered dwellings dating to this period, and it seems clear that the middle building was still in use. Late bronze 2B layers were heavily cut by leveling operations carried out in the Iron Age, and this explains the scarcity of 13th century materials. I'm uh, just going to read a little bit more from Nigro, and then we'll, we'll, I'll put together what this means. Late bronze two layers were also detected on the southern and eastern flank of the Tell by the Italian-Palestinian expedition in areas A, E, and T, as well as to the northwest in Austro-German trenches. The overall stratigraphy of Tell S. Sultan through time may explain why late bronze age layers were mostly preserved all around the Tell on its flanks, but were almost completely cut away from its top by Iron Age, Roman, Hellenistic, and Byzantine building activities. All right, all right. what does all this mean? Okay, so the claim is that um, there is a destruction layer in the late Bronze Age, as Kenyon claimed to have found, okay? But that in the late Bronze Age, there wasn't a city. But the thing is, is that that, that now is old news. 
that the most recent excavations, okay, um, this report, by the way, is, uh, what's the date on this? 2020, okay, that's pretty recent, okay, that the current understanding of Jericho is that there is indeed a city there at that time, a walled city, okay, well, which is exactly, you know, what would be expected, destruction layer and a city there at the time. Uh, there are also tombs near the settlement that are clearly late Bronze Age tombs. You're not going to have tombs if you don't have a city nearby. Um, and uh, now, just another word on why Jericho also presents a challenge. So, um, erosion is very much a problem here. Espe uh, uh, just in general, because it's an arid climate that gets intense downpours. And what happens when you combine those two things on a mound, okay? You get a lot of erosion. But not only that, but think about this. What does Joshua do as soon as the city is destroyed? He places a ban on it, right? Um, and, it and because of this ban, it is not rebuilt until the time of Ahab. So in uh, Joshua 6.26... Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, cursed be Yahweh, or curse, cursed before Yahweh, be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. And then it's not until later on in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Aviram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Seguv, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Okay? So think about what that means. You get this site that's destroyed and burned. It's in an arid region with heavy rainfall, and it's unoccupied because there's a curse on it, for about 350 years, okay? Even more if you're going with an earlier date for the Exodus. So what happens to that site during that time? It's not as if that, that, that destruction layer is protected by building on top of it or anything like that. Okay, um, we're, about, uh, we're about halfway through here, um, more than halfway through what I've got. Uh, so why don't we just break for questions, and then we'll jump back in where we'll look at I and Chatzor. So let's take a little bit of a break, see if you guys have any questions. Yeah, John. How big was uh, Jericho? Like they had to walk around it. How long would that have taken? Do you mm, have yeah. any idea? Uh, do I have? I'm not sure I know the exact size of it. Uh, uh, can we go back to that aerial shot of it? There is the first Jericho slide there. Uh, should be the one before that. Yeah. So, I mean, you get, the, get an idea of the size of it. I mean, it's pretty huge. Um, so, however big that is, how's that for an answer? Yeah. Well, one time they had to walk around <laughs> it seven times, so I guess it was doable, right? Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it, but this is like, I mean, you do that in a day. I mean, that's an all-day project, probably. Yeah. So when it says that Cain left the presence of God and built a city, that was just an, uh, an enclosure, a uh, walled enclosure, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's that's essentially just what for his clan, is. his family. That's mm -hmm. basically, and that was called a city. Yeah. 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 Basically, a wall. I mean. 
there's other marks of cities than just a wall. You can have a village with a wall around it. So like some kind of centralized administration, things like that, you know, characterize a city. But it's kind of like a sliding scale. At what point does a village become a city? So, so a city was just a, a, a safer place because it was walled in, uh, and that's why they would call it a city. It's, it's not to do with population. or Yeah, it doesn't have to no. do with population. No. They, can, no. they vary widely in terms of size. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, let's bring the mic over here. Uh, well, let's get it for the, for the uh, recording. Uh, recalling back to that 1208 BC date. Yeah. Is that one of the first recorded battle? Um, uh, Out, outside of the Bible, it's the first, first recorded first. mention of Israel, and it is a battle, right. yes. And Memphor is the ancient name. Is that the future name? Is that Armageddon with a big Megiddo? final battle? Megiddo? Um, no, wasn't it Memtaw up there? Oh, so Merneptah is the name of the pharaoh. Oh, okay. So the he's pharaoh. the name of the pharaoh that campaigns into, uh, uh, into Canaan and fights Israel in 1208. Okay, but the final battle of Armageddon, is that the site? So it's actually, that would be by Megiddo. So okay. Har Megiddo, Har, it just means mountain. Okay. So it's, the, 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 it's literal, Armageddon is... Uh, Mount of Megiddo. Okay. In, yeah. We got one in the back center. We also got Mr. Ed Zoon over here. Hello. Howdy, Ed. So Rahab's part of the building doesn't fall down, right? Um, yeah, no. So, so the entire wall, because she's built into the wall. Right. Yeah, her. Yeah. And... Um, because she gets, she gets her family to come. Yes. There, right? And they're and, spared. And the way that that worked was that, um, so there's essentially like two different kinds of walls that we could speak of. One is typical of middle bronze and one is typical of um, late and then like Iron Age especially. So the, the first kind are just, you find huge blocks and you stack them and that's your wall. You might reinforce them with stuff. Um, and these walls are, can be exceedingly thick. It's not, they're not wimpy or anything. But the other way of doing it was what is called the casemate wall. And we'll probably look at some of those next week. Where you actually have two walls and then you fill them in with stuff. You fill the centers in with stuff. And that's more characteristic of like Iron Age. And at Jericho, what, would it, what it would have been would have been a casemate system. And with parts of it, instead of a fill, you actually have like a apartments or houses in them. Yeah. And that would have been what Rahab would have lived in. Yeah. But that part of the wall would not have fallen down. Yeah. yeah. So I missed last week's um, presentation. So I'm trying to catch up on Jericho. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> so what you say is that archaeology is saying that according to the Bible, um, there was a Jericho, mm -hmm. and it, it was discovered that it has a lot of the stuff that is spoken of in the Bible, and that the closest one to reality is the one when the Israelites lived there. Is that what you're saying? Okay, yeah, so, <clears throat> what I'm, so the situation with Jericho is essentially this, that like, um, yeah, yeah, there was certainly a city, Jericho, um, and it's one of the oldest cities in the world. And, uh, and during the time when we know that Israel would have likely been entering into the land, 
it was occupied, and there's a destruction layer there. That's essentially like the take-home from that. Because if you read like the more skeptical stuff, especially before the more recent stuff done by Lorenzo Nigro and his team, uh, their synthesis of the data, the, the complaint will often be, yeah, there's collapsed walls, yeah, there's a destruction layer, but it's at the wrong time. It's too early. And so the Israelites couldn't have done that. In fact, Jericho gets destroyed like a lot throughout history before the Israelites come in. And so the issue there is that, I mean, the issue is number one, Jericho, because of its location and the ban that Joshua puts on it is a very poorly preserved site. Um, some of the past digs have not been as maybe meticulous as they should have been. Um, but we, we do know that it was occupied at the time it needs to be and that there is a destruction uh, at the time that it needs to be. So that's the situation with Jericho. I, let's talk about I. You like that? All right. Okay, so again, I is the second of the, of the three cities that uh, the Israelites are said to have destroyed. <clears throat> now, here's the deal with I. So I is even a bigger challenge than Jericho from a certain perspective. And you will shortly see why that is. So <clears throat> first off, I, knowing what I is, is a bit of a challenge because it, as a city, it is mentioned 36 times in the Hebrew Bible, and with the exception of one of those times, which is Jeremiah 49.3, it is always called Ha'ai, and Ha is the Hebrew word the, and it's very strange to put the word the in front of a place name. Like, we don't say, my church is in the Totowa, right? You know, say, I'm going to the New Jersey. Um, and um, the word I literally means ruin. So in the Bible, when you read I, uh, in all the places except for Jer that one place in Jeremiah, it actually says the ruin. <laughs> and that's what I is, which probably you're not going to call it that. If you're like, hey, I just invented this, I just founded this awesome city, why don't you live there? I got some prime real estate, I call it the ruin. Like, no, it's, it was probably actually originally called something else, the name that's been lost to us, and became known as the ruin, or Ha'ai, to the Israelites who lived in the land. Um, and so the actual name would have been forgotten. Uh, the traditional location of it is at Et-Tel, and uh, this was identified by uh, Albright. Uh, indeed, Et-Tel is Arabic for the mound or the ruin mound. And, um, but it's identified primarily because it's, number one, close to Bethel. And Bethel is a pretty known site. And in the Bible, it's very close to Bethel. And also, the geographical features around this tell fit pretty well with the uh, physical configuration uh, and the surrounding terrain. If you read the narrative, you know, like they, they hide and then the people come out and the, then there's like rocky crags and stuff, right? A lot of that stuff is right around um, Et-Tel. And so there's, it's tentatively identified as I. Um, the problem with Et-Tel, however, is that it doesn't seem to have been occupied anytime between 2400 BC and 1200 BC. 
So like at no one's dating of the Exodus is there evidence of occupation here. Um, and there could be various reasons why that is. Again, absence of evidence. It's not evidence of absence. Um, uh, but it's unclear as to whether or not this even is I. It's not like there's a sign, welcome to I, or anything like that. So, but this is kind of like it, most, most archaeologists or geographers would say that this is your leading candidate for where I is. Um, it's been suggested that I, like Jericho um, of the late Bronze Age, was not some towering city, but in this case may have even been just a small military outpost for Bethel. Um, so uh, I'm just going to go ahead and quote J. Maxwell Miller, who is no conservative Bible scholar. This guy, you read his history of ancient Israel and you know, most of it he thinks is just made up. So this is not a conservative, but this is his judgment about I. He says, the fact that these widely variant views about Israelite origins all claim archaeological support simply illustrates, in my opinion, that archaeological evidence is ambiguous or essentially neutral on the subject. And he's referring to the, uh, he's referring to the various views about I. Okay? So there's not a lot that we can say about it. So there's just a question mark hanging over I. However, let's take a look at the third site. And this is Chatzor, which is the modern site of Tel El-Kedah. Okay, look at the, uh, this is a beautiful site. Um, look at the nice six-chambered gate, city gate here. We'll talk more about those next week when we're talking about the uh, United Monarchy. But as you can see, like very nicely excavated. Um, <clears throat> It is, uh, as a whole, it is over 200 acres, um, larger than the later Israelite city even. So the Hatzor of the late Bronze Age uh, is actually bigger than what the Israelites will later um, have on that mound. Uh, there is both a lower city and an upper city to it. This, of course, is only part of it. Uh, its late Bronze Age population estimate is as high as somewhere between 20 and 30,000 people. Okay, so it's um, to, to, to use, a, to coin a term, huge. Um, and um, it is possibly the largest city in the entire Levant. And so interestingly, Joshua 11.10, of course, refers to it as the head of all those kingdoms. Um, and um, indeed, outside of the Bible, um, this is... Um, okay, so outside the Bible, there are... Uh, there's a thing, have you guys ever heard of the Amarna letters? So Amarna is a tell in Egypt, which was the capital of Pharaoh Akhenaten. And uh, there was found a cache of 382 uh, stone tablets, which are letters written in cuneiform um, from various cities throughout the Levant. You've got letters from Amuru, Byblos, Damascus, Kedesh, and Jerusalem, uh, a lot of sites that you read about in the Bible. These are earlier than the Exodus, but they're basically uh, vassals to the Egyptian king, and they're writing him about all these different things. We need help for this. We need help for that. We need help for that. And um, of all of the cities that we have letters from in the Amarna archive, and we'll look more at the Amarna Archive next week. Um, they are, Chatzor is the only 
one that the other cities call, where the other cities call its leader a king. Okay, um, so Hazor is indeed the head of all of those kingdoms when Israel enters into the land. So let's look at what uh, the Bible says about what happened to Hazor. Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded. But none of those cities that stood on mounds or tells did Israel burn except Hatzor alone, that Joshua burned. So the city of Hatzor is destroyed several times in both the Middle and Late Bronze Ages. Uh, but the final Late Bronze destruction is the one that is of interest to us. It, it was regarded as early as its initial excavation by the di director Amon Bentor as almost certainly having taken place in the second third of the 13th century BC, which again is right when, when we would say that it is. Uh, Bentor describes this as a thick layer of destruction caused by, quote, exceptionally intense fire. Um, excavated areas from this time, from the late Bronze Age, include both a palace and a temple, both of which strangely lack any subsequent building on top of them for hundreds of years. The excavators, both uh, uh, Yadin and Bentor, suggest this was due to a religious stigma that was placed on the site. The Late Bronze Age palace had also been destroyed by fire. It had wooden floors made with Lebanon cedar, which are totally burned out, as well as wooden beams through the stones to reinforce it, the walls, which were burned inside the walls. Uh, the largest ever human-shaped statue in, ever found in Israel was found by the entrance of the throne room to Hatzor. It's believed that it was the, sto that it's a, a, the storm god Baal Adad, so Baal from the Bible, probably the patron deity of the city. Its hands and its feet had been removed. Uh, and then it was smashed into over a hundred pieces. Six or seven Egyptian-style statues uh, were also found that had the same treatment, still bearing the chisel marks from where they had been dismembered. Moreover, the names of proper the proper names on inscription, Egyptian inscriptions had been mutilated. And not only is that, of course, interesting based on the account that happens in the Bible, right? You're to destroy their gods and not worship them, and um, he burned the city. But it's also interesting in that it shows that this is not Egyptian or Canaanite, right? It's not Egyptians coming in destroying Egyptian stuff like that, and it's not Canaanites destroying Canaanite stuff like that. The ashes in some places were as deep as three feet, caused by a fire estimated to be as hot as 2,350 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and so, whereas Jericho, you know, has its problems, I, we're not even that sure where it is, Chatzor is very much a 
like dead on for what we read in the book of Joshua. Okay, we're going to shift gears. We've talked enough about destruction. Let's talk about building up. Okay, uh, so beginning, beginning in the early 12th century, so get your timeline back in your head, right? We're looking at about 1200 BC. Um, beginning in the early 12th century BC, we also find hundreds of small village settlements appearing in the archaeological records of the highlands of Palestine. And this is just the sample of, like, you know, this is the, the Dead Sea, and you're only about halfway up the Jordan here. It's actually very difficult to find good pictures of these. Um, but you can see all of these are little highland, are little sites in the highlands. Um, they, are up, they are located north in Upper Galilee, in Lower Galilee, and in the hill country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as well as in the south, which is here represented, in the Judean hill country and in the arid northern Negev, the Negev being an, an area in the south. Um, to quote uh, Barry Beitzel, no relation to our senior pastor, who's a geographer, um, an arresting geographic correlation exists between the locations of these new sites and where, according to the Bible, the ancient Israelites settled in Canaan, which you can see in the map in pink here. Uh, in addition to the Transjordan, Israel came to settle precisely in the highlands of Samaria, Judah, and the Negev, the eastern and eastern Galilee, but they were unable to settle along the coastal plains or in some of the inland valleys. Now, about a hundred of these little sites have been excavated, and others await excavation um, and are known to us through archaeological surveys only. Um, it's noteworthy also that in the late Bronze Age, before the Israelites would have entered the, the land, there's nothing there. These are, these are all early Iron Age sites. All told, between the 13th and 11th centuries BC, we see approximately 600 of these new sites pop up in the highlands. And uh, I think I mentioned briefly last week, when I, when I, I quickly mentioned this, um, the, the difference in population change, and these are so, and this is just, you know, one, one scholar's estimate of this, uh, but at the end of the late Bronze Age, so the 13th century, this is before Israel is in the land, it's about 12,000. 12, By the time you're in the 12th century, it's risen up to 55,000. And by the time you're in the 11th century, which is roughly the time of like Saul and David, the population is 75,000. So you can see clearly something is going on here. Um, uh, William Deaver of the uh, University of Arizona says, large numbers of people migrated here from somewhere else, strongly motivated to colonize an underpopulated fringe area of urban Canaan now in decline at the end of the late Bronze Age. Because remember, we talked about the, the, the collapse of the city-states at the end of the, the Bronze Age. Um, Lawrence Steger the, uh, of, of Harvard University, this extraordinary increase in population in the Iron One cannot be explained only by natural population growth of the few late Bronze Age city-states in this region. There must have been a major influx of people into the highlands in the 12th and 11th centuries BC. Um, 
Now, here's one example of what one of what uh, an example of what one of these sites looks like that has obviously been excavated. Um, most, as I've said, are founded de novo. They're, in other words, they're not placed on destroyed late bronze tells. They're, they're built like that, and that's the first building that there is in that place. They are typically unwalled. Okay, you see any walls here? I don't see any walls here. There's, there's no walls around the settlements. Uh, the populations typically range from several dozen to as many as 300 people. Um, again, none of them are cities. Uh, you have center courtyards um, uh, that are U-shaped uh, with houses and clusters of three or four, which would have represented multi-generational housing. So you may be familiar from your Old Testaments, the concept of the house of the father, a bait of, which is essentially an Israelite nuclear family, but several generations, and uh, with each generation kind of adding on to their parents. Um, also very distinctive of what is clearly Israelite, and we see this later on um, in structures, um, are what are called, called uh, pillared housing. So here you can see pillars, okay, on this one. Um, and essentially you have like um, uh, pillars which separate long rooms. You would have kept animals down there as well as done a lot of basic household tasks on the, those first floors. Um, they're generally self-sufficient. You've got some contact with Canaanite culture evidenced. Their, painting, their, their, their pottery tends to be unpainted. It's undecorated. It's just very simple. Um, also on the hillsides surrounding them, they would use terraced agriculture. So you know what that is? Like instead of the, just a hill, they, they cut it like this so they can make like flat areas to grow crops and stuff. Um, uh, they would use lime, lime plastered cisterns cut into the bedrock to address the problem of water shortages during the summer. There were subterranean stone lined grain silos in most of them, uh, some farming tools made of iron, uh, collared rim storage jars, which are also distinctive Israelite. Um, a strongly agrarian domestic mode of production. Um, you've got a, an a, a notable absence also of shrines and temples and other sanctuaries. So they seem to be almost entirely like domestic and, and, and with no evidence of sacred space. And very interestingly, and we saw this a little bit with the Mount Ebal altar, you've got the almost complete absence of pig bones. So if you look around at some of the neighboring sites, especially Philistine sites like Timnah or Ekron, um, as well as older Canaanite sites on the coastal plain, um, you've, got, you, you've, got ton, you've got pigs that are commonly you know, domesticated and eaten there. At these, you don't find pig bones. Um, and that is similar to Beth, Beit Shemesh, which is um, a clearly Israelite, no pig bones there either. Um, and that's also interesting in the fact that uh, the woodlands in the central highland have a lot of native or several natives of their own native species of pigs, and it's kind of like ideal for raising them. So how do you explain the absence of those animals in these sites? 
Um, so I think, you know, so you start putting some of these pieces together, right? Like we've looked at like the, the think of the dating timeline from last week where we looked at uh, when the cities that the Israelites are said to have built in Egypt, um, what, when that city existed and the fact that that overlaps with the abandonment of Avaris. Then 40 years later, you have a Pharaoh claiming Israel's in the land and he's identifying them as a people group not a geographical or city, right? And then you've got the altar on Mount Ebal right at that same time. And then you've got, um, you know, mounting evidence at Jericho, ambiguous evidence at Ai, (laughs) but very good evidence at Chatzor right then at the same time. And then right after that happens, you get these babies popping up all over the highlands, the central highlands. But, you know, the Bible is not a historical book, of course. Um, All right, uh, let's talk a little bit about early Israelite cultic centers. Okay, so we've obviously already looked at Mount Ebal. This, uh, I'm like dripping seltzer all over myself. Um, That's nothing new. Um, So first, let's look at Tel Selun. This is biblical Shiloh. Um, So... Here's a beautiful aerial shot of this site. Uh, again, like most of the pictures I'm showing you, uh, I, I use what's available. There, there is more <laughs> uh, that, that to be seen. Uh, but this is a fascinating site. So it's abandoned in the late Bronze Age. Uh, but then it's, uh, the use of the site is resumed, coinciding with the appearance of these hill Uh, these hill settlements that we just looked at, okay? Now, what is the significance of Shiloh? What is at Shiloh? You guys recall? The tabernacle is there. It's there when you start the book of Samuel. That's where Samuel goes to to serve the Lord. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is taken into battle and then lost to the Philistines, right? So this is where, this is, you know, a religious site according to uh, 1 Samuel, um, so there are numerous buildings there, um, containing t- at least 20 of these collared rim jars, again, distinctive Israelite pottery. Uh, it's also, its location is interesting because it's nestled within a high concentration of Israelite sites, uh, with minimal Canaanite presence in the surrounding territory. Of course, that's going to be a pretty good place to put your sacred shrine, right, if you're um, uh, where, where it's not like right next door to, to the, to the uh, people who might want to do harm to your God or your priests. Um, <clears throat> major construction be, re, uh, began again in the mid-12th century. This here is an isometric reconstruction of Area C, what it would have looked like. Um, that is not an actual photograph. Um, but then it is destroyed by fire in 1050 BC. Now, this is a kind of an interesting little tidbit here. So, as I said, at the beginning of the book of Samuel, of 1 Samuel, Shiloh's mentioned all over the place. That's where most of the stuff is happening. And then what happens? They think that they can defeat the Philistines simply by carrying the ark into battle, okay? And does that go well for them? No, the ark of the covenant is taken. And at that point, 
Shiloh is almost never mentioned in the Bible again. It appears briefly in two places. Number one, um, Abiathar, who is the final priest of the house of Eli, uh, attempts to support Solomon's brother instead of Solomon, Adonijah, and uh, is banished from the priesthood and has to go live at Shiloh. So apparently there is a settlement there of some priests, and also the prophet Ahijah, in, in, who in 1 Kings is the one who tears his garment and gives 10 pieces um, to uh, Jeroboam when he's, he's saying the kingdom is going to be split. He lives at Shiloh. So there are people living there, but it, it, as far as we can tell, the tabernacle is no longer there. And that's why right after it gets, it gets taken into Philistine hands, right? And then you have the whole thing where they put it in the, in the temple of, Dag, of uh, Dagon, their god, uh, you know, and, and, the, and Dagon's head and his hands fall off. And so they're like, oh, we got to get rid of this hot potato. And so they send the, the ark back into Israel. Do they, does it go back to Shiloh? No. It goes to Beit Shemesh, and then it spends decades at Kiryat Yearim. Uh, it never goes back to Shiloh. Why? Probably because Shiloh is destroyed at that time. And in fact, at several places in Jeremiah, um, it alludes to this as well. So uh, let's go, go back to slide 34 here. Uh, here's a couple passages from Jeremiah. I'll just read the first one. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. So essentially, I'm going to make Jerusalem like I made Shiloh, right? So what I'm saying is, although the Bible never says the Philistines came and destroyed Shiloh, Shiloh seems to have been destroyed. Um, and the archaeological evidence is that that happens at a, that, that dates to about 1050 BC. And if you're thinking about the timeline, David comes into power at about 1011 BC. So if you're thinking that, this is when David would have been a little kid, okay? Or maybe even before he was born. This is, this is um, you know, you're f f probably familiar enough with the narrative. Uh, the timing works pretty hand in glove for this. The other um, early Israelite, um, apparently cultic evidence, cultic meaning religious stuff, um, are what are, are, are called the footprint enclosures that have been found. Some suggesting that this may, may be, um, that these may be Gilgals. So you're familiar with uh, Gilgal is a site that uh, the Israelites do go into. It simply means a circle. And um, it doesn't seem to have been like a city or anything like that. And we can't be sure that that's, that that's what this is. But this is, these are intriguing. And I kind of, this is more like archaeology X-Files right here. So number one, can you see why they call it a footprint enclosure? It looks like a footprint. And there's actually several of these. They've been found at Yafit, Masua. This one is the one from Bedat Es Sha'ab. And also another site called El Yunuk. Um, which is further west, even further west. This is actually a Transjordanian site. It's what it's uh, east of the Jordan, and um, which which suggests that perhaps, right? This is in the Transjordan. 
perhaps this is a, these are temporary, what's been suggested is that perhaps these are temporary worship sites where the tabernacle would have been set up and they begin appearing in the Transjordan and then you, and then they come over, right? And um, they are dated to the 12th or 11th century. Um, they're encircled by a double walkway. And so it's like what they would have walked, just like walked around it, right? That's not like a walled city or anything like that. And um, although these are widely interpreted as ritual enclosures, no images of deities have ever been found there. And there is no evidence that multiple deities were worshipped there. Which again, when you find um, worship sites without images, it tends to suggest something similar to what we find in the Bible. So this is speculative. But um, this is included in what people talk about when they talk about the, um, you know, archaeological evidence for the religion of, of, of very early Israel. So we talked a lot about Israel, but we'd probably be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about their buddies to the west, the Philistines. So, okay, recall that everything was kind of collapsing at the end of the late Bronze Age. And... Um, one of the features of this is that you have this migration of individuals who come to be known as the Sea Peoples migrating from the Aegean and attacking various sites along the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, these were composed of groups from Greece, Crete, Cyprus, and possibly Asia Minor as well. And um, uh, Pharaoh Ramesses III... So he reigns in 1186 through 1155 BC. He apparently, although there's some question as to whether or not he's attributing something that happened right before his reign to something he did. You can't always trust these pharaohs with what they claim to have done. But he claims to have fought out off an invasion of sea peoples in his eighth year. Um, and... Um, this, this also probably looks like was probably not the first time the Sea Peoples tried to attack Egypt. Uh, but their arrival is described in the mortuary temple of Ramesses III. Uh, here, here is like a, an aerial shot of it, okay? Uh, in Medinet Habu, just outside the city of Thebes. And uh, the eastern side of one of the pylons in this reads as follows. The foreign countries made a conspiracy in their lands. All at once the lands were removed and scattered in the fray. No land could stand before their arms from Hati, Kod, Karkamish, Arzawa, and Alashia on, being cut off at one time. A camp was set up in one place in Amor. They desolated its people, and its land was like that which has never come into being." They were coming forward towards Egypt while the flame was prepared before them. Their confederation was the Philistines, the Chequer, the Shekelesh, the Denyan, the Wehesh, lands united. They laid their hands upon the lands as far as the circuit of the earth, their hearts confidence and trusting. Our plans will succeed. Spoiler alert, their plans don't succeed. Okay, those who reached my frontier, their seed is not. Notice the same expression made about 20, 30 years earlier by Merneptah of Israel. Their seed is not. Their heart and their soul are finished forever and ever. 
Those who came forward together on the sea, the full flame was in front of them at the river mouths, while a stockade of lances surrounded them on the shore. They were dragged in, enclosed, and prostrated on the beach. I got it right this week. Killed and made into heaps from head to tail. Their ships and their goods were as if fallen into the water. And uh, it's accompanied by this like crazy scene here. So first of all, notice how amazingly tall Ramesses III is. Uh, also, like, no, like, him trampling on his enemies there. It's just incredible. Like, it's one of those things. It's like a where's Waldo. Like, the more you look at it. But you can see them coming from the seas, right? And the Egyptians uh, fighting them as they get off their boat, meeting them with their lances. And um, the different peoples, pe- the different people groups who compose them, okay, like the Weshesh and the Denyan uh, and the Philistines or the Peleshet, as they're called in the Egyptian, um, are identifiable by their physical characteristic. And the Philistines are the ones with these feathered type headdresses on, okay, that kind of look like Mohawks. Um, they're also, also the fact that this is not just sheerly like their army going out and trying to kick everyone's butt. In a lot of these art, a lot of this art, they're accompanied by their families in ox-drawn carts. So they're looking for a new place to live. So it's basically like, like they're, 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 they're refugees and they're trying to fight their way in to different lands, okay? So at any rate, whatever the actual story is here, they are repulsed from Egypt and settled along the southern coast in Canaan. One interpretation would be that they're given this as kind of like a compromise by the Pharaoh because this is, he still exerts a lot of influence in the land of Canaan. But at this time, you know, um, it, particularly beginning in the Iron Age, Egyptian control over Canaan becomes less and less. But um, so they arrive in the Iron Age and populate the urban centers that are near the Mediterranean coast. The largest of these is Tel Mikne, which is also called Ekron in the Bible. Also, you have small and urban, smaller urban centers, such as Ashkelon on the coast, Ashdod, which is the second most strongly fortified city, Gaza, which we know basically nothing archaeologically about, except that it's there, and Gath, which is very well excavated. It's called Tel Es Safi today. Um, their material culture, being Aegeans, is basically Cypriot and Mycenaean, otherwise known as Greek. Um, They've got distinctive pottery. They've got, and be thankful that I took the section on Philistine pottery out of this because he would have really snoozed. Um, distinctive daggers, as well as one particular interesting, this is called an Ashdoda. So it's, it's a goddess or a woman of some sort. There's a lot of female goddess figurines found among them built into a chair. And no one knows what the heck this is. In fact, if you go to the uh, site about the excavations at Tel Esafi, Gath, Gath, there's a page. In fact, if you Google Ashdoda, it'll be like the first result. They say the purpose of the Ashdoda finally found. And you have this little 3D printed Ashdoda and it's holding a cell phone. For, um, <laughs> But here you can, I mean, you can see the Aegean, um, you know, style uh, art on it and everything. Um, as I said, large amount of pork consumption. These guys love their ribs, love their bacon. Um, 
And uh, so a little bit about the different Philistine sites. So you've got Ashdod, um, which uh, features a very nice six-chambered gate and our famous Ashdoda from it, our, our, our lovely uh, Ashdoda. Um, uh, you've got Ashkelon. Again, there's not a lot known about Ashkelon. Um, a, a very significant site, however, is Tel Mikne, uh, which again is the city of Ekron, which was the, the largest, the most powerful Philistine city. And here, actually, we have a nice, we have a nice inscription, too. Um, and um, uh, this is my trans- translation of the inscription, and it's, it's close to, you know, any, anyone else's that you might find. Uh, but it says this, it says, the temple, literally the house, that Achish, son of Padi, son of Ada, son of uh, Yod Samek Dalet, we don't know what that, uh, what that would be, son of Ada, son of Yair, ruler of Ekron built for, and again, uh, P-T-G-N-Y, his lady. Okay, so this is a dedicatory inscription. Uh, his lady pro- being this deity that's mentioned here. May she bless him and guard him and prolong his days and bless his land. So this is an actual Philistine inscription. How cool is that? And um, interestingly, the, name, the names Paddy and Achaius appear in Assyrian inscription. Achaius being the way that Achish is spelled here. And this inscription, by the way, is 7th century. So it's a little later than we've been looking at today. Uh, but the name Achaius appears in the Bible as Achish, which is how I've rendered it, rendered it here. And who is Achish? Well, I'm glad you asked. He is the king of another Philistine city, Gath. And this is the name of the king, like, when David flees there, and they're like, and he's worried that they're going to kill him because this is David, the, the Philistine slayer. And so he lets the spit run down his beard and acts all crazy and stuff. Um, and, of course, we're not saying this is the same the King Achish, but what this shows is that this is the, uh, a Philistine uh, royal name. Of course, there you know being multiple king's names. That happens all over the place. So that's an, an interesting little parallel there. Um, Ekron's uh, prominence and size shrank in the early 10th century BC, probably as a result of increased prominence in the house of David. So in other words, um, Ekron is this big, awesome city, but then the more and more um, uh, David is, uh, gains a foothold and his dynasty gets rolling, um, he, as we read in the Bible, subdues the Philistines, uh, which probably me- affected their, their major cities. Uh, another important city is Gath, as I'd said. Uh, this is Tel Etz-Safi. And um, Gath also increases in prosperity when Ekron declines. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about Gath in upcoming weeks. Um, this, of course, is the city where Goliath is from. Um, uh, other noteworthy Philistine sites, Tel Kassil, and we're not sure what Philistines, what the actual name of that would have been, as well as Timnah, which is mentioned in the Samson narratives. Um, today it's called Tel Batash. Uh, that is located in the Sorek Valley. And it, it appears there that what you have are uh, lots of Canaanites living in the city and Philistine overlords kind of running the, running the place. So, okay. Well, that's about it for the, uh, for the conquest and the settlement. Uh, let's go ahead and just open it up, see if you guys have any questions.
Nice. Oh, here we go. Hey, so it's a, <clears throat> did you, were you saying that um, I, there was like 1,200 years? Where yeah, 2,400 to 1,200 BC, there appears to have been no occupation there. Is it, the, is the way that the Bible talks about I, does that give space for it to, to be allegorical, or does it, does it speak of it as if it's assumed that it is a specific space? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, the, that that part of the scriptures is clearly claiming its history. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't see any reason to think that it's like, you know, an allegorical defeat of a city or anything like, or like a symbolic or, yeah, I mean, everything else in Joshua seems to be expected to be taken as history. So I take it as history. It's just that, you know, there's just, we just don't have evidence one way or the other. And so that's why I, I quote Miller there, you know, who himself would be considered like a skeptical scholar saying like, we should withhold judgment on this. We just don't know, you know, so, yeah. So do you know why the treasure, treasures of I had to go into the house of the Lord? That's why the biblical narrative was, wasn't it? Uh, do I know why they had yeah. to go in the yeah, house like, of the Lord? Was there any special reason for that? Like, it kind of seemed to be, like, probably dedicated to their gods. I mean, why would God, well, it was the silver and the gold, I guess, because Achan took some, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, generally the concept is, so um, in, in the accounts of the conquest, there is a concept called the cherem. And cherem, uh, or its verb, haram, is translated uh, devote to destruction, devote to utter destruction, dedicate, commit to the ban. And what this appears to be is a category of holiness that has to do with, like, almost like holiness beyond holiness to the extent where, like, it can't be anymore because it's been defiled so badly. So, right, the Canaanites are presented as people who have defiled the land so that the land, quote, vomited them out and everything. And so the, the, the materials that you would typically take in as, as booty, as captured booty, would then be, uh, instead of becoming the possession of the Israelites, except when exceptions were made, um, would be then brought to the temple. And so if you envision gold being taken to the temple... So first of all, it's not all, um, not all gold in those cities would have been, you know, idols. Uh, in fact, uh, Achan has a lashon of gold. A lashon is the Hebrew word for tongue. It probably just means a long bar of, to of, of gold. Okay, um, but even if they were, bringing them to the temple, the temple requires, and the tabernacle requires gold. And so it would have been melted down and forged and used uh, for, for purposes in the temple. The other thing, I mentioned that there are exceptions made. One of the ironic things about the Achan narrative is that Achan steals this from Jericho and, you know, goes through all this and he's, is, is killed for it. He becomes harem as a result, like, like the Canaanites, right? And... But then when they actually are commanded to go into Ai, the Lord actually allows them, the Israelite soldiers, to keep what is found there. So he violates the ban to keep something and is killed for it. Had he obeyed the very next city they were commanded to go against, they, he would have been allowed to have done that. Yeah. 
I've, I, did, I have written on the deeper study blog on the website, like a treatment of a lot of the ethical issues that surround this. So like, I know that it's a tough subject, especially if you think of like what it actually would have been like. Um, but. All right, anyone else? Yeah, Ed. So, so after, you know, all the people that settled in the land of Canaan, you could trace them back in the book of Genesis, but the Philistines, they aren't mentioned, right? Yeah, the Philistines are mentioned in Genesis 10 um, but they came as from. having come from Kaftor or Kaftorim, which is up in that area, Cyprus in that area. But they, they, That's, they, um, what's that? But the, you know, most of them are like the Hittites and all that. They trace them back to... Um, in Genesis when... Yeah, uh, like the various after, sons of Noah and yeah, everything. Right. But, you know, I never saw the Philistines. In yeah. Yeah, so uh, Philistines, Genesis 10, 19. Um, Pathrusim, Kazluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaftorim. So grouping all those together. <laughs> those... They were, they, those were are, kid, they were from what kid? What's that? Which, which guy are they from? Yeah. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. So those are from the sons of Ham. Those are traded, oh, traced back to Ham. Yeah. Okay, thanks. And Amos also places that as their origin. And it's often pointed out, rightly so. Um, Amos being one of the early writing, write, earlier writing prophets. All right, everybody. Well, I'm around if you do have other questions, but uh, thank you for sticking with me through this. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, next week, we will be looking at the United Monarchy. So that'll be uh, David and Solomon.